Hi, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am thrilled and honored to be joined today by Ocean Robbins. Hello, Ocean. Hi, Howard. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so I've uh, I started preparing kind of a, an introductory bio, and it kind of was going to be longer than the interview. Um, you've done an awful lot of things. Um, so I noticed I, I first came across you probably ten, nine or ten years ago when you um, had founded the uh, co-founded Yes, and you've been doing just just amazing work in all sorts of spheres. There's almost no sphere of of social justice or planetary healing that I've come across that if I drill down a little bit, I don't find you. So I, I suspect that you're quintuplets, although I, um, if that's a secret, I will not let it out of the bag. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you and um, love to be you to begin just by telling a little bit about, uh, you know, who, who you are and and the stuff that you'd like us to focus on today. Well, well, thanks, Howard. Uh, of course, my name is Ocean Robbins, and I actually do have twins, so I'm not quintuplets, but <laughs> my wife and I have identical twin boys named River and Bodhi. Um, and I'll start with a little bit of my family background, which some listeners may be aware of. My grandfather, Irvin Robbins, founded the Baskin Robbins Ice Cream Company, and uh, my dad, John Robbins, was groomed from early childhood to one day join in the family business, but he ended up walking away from 31 flavors of ice cream and any access to the family wealth because he wanted to follow his own rocky road and make a difference in the world. And he felt that inventing a 30-second flavor, um, while tasty, would not contribute to a more healthy, a more vibrant, uh, a more sustainable planet. And so... He ended up moving with my mom to a little island off the coast of Canada where they built a one-room log cabin, grew most of their own food, and lived very, very simply, which was quite a pendulum swing from a class perspective. And I was born to parents who were doing yoga and meditating for hours every day and calling their kid Ocean. (laughs) And then when I got a little older, my family moved to California, and my dad ended up writing a book called Diet for a New America which inspired millions of people to look at their food choices as an opportunity to take a stand for their health and the health of their planet. Diet for New America became this runaway bestseller, and the media had a lot of fun with my dad's story. They called him the rebel without a cone. So I was coming of age then as a teenager with my dad inspiring uh, huge numbers of people. We were getting tens of thousands of letters from enthusiastic readers thanking him for his work. And I wanted to reach out to my generation. So at the age of 16, I founded a nonprofit organization called YES, or Youth for Environmental Sanity. I joined with some other teenagers, and we started a tour speaking to schools about the environment and about food choices and about how youth could be a part of the solution. And we reached more than 650,000 students in schools, uh, school assemblies across the U.S. and around the world. And as I kept traveling the country, I saw the the horror of cafeteria food systems and how many of our kids were growing up with obesity and diabetes and the foundations of heart disease setting in earlier and earlier and how what was normal was toxic. And I knew we had to go deeper. And so over the years, I've applied many approaches. And what I'm so excited about now is working directly with my dad John Robbins, as we founded the Food Revolution Network, and we're, we're mobilizing more than 100,000 people 
to work for healthy, sustainable, humane, and conscious food for all. It's an online education and advocacy initiative. And I just think food is one of those places where, I mean, if you want to make a difference in the world and if you want to take a stand for your health, the wonderful thing is that you can. I mean, we feel powerless a lot of times. We face such big problems in the world. And, and a lot of times we think that it's kind of luck of the draw. You know, wh- whether we feel happy or not has a lot to do with genetics or what happens to us. But when it comes to what you put in your body, you have power. You have immense power. And you really can change the course of your fate. And so I think our message is fundamentally about empowerment, which to me is sharing the truth so that folks can make the choices that will really help us have the lives that we want. Right. Be- beautifully spoken. I'm, uh, I'm, scribbling, I'm scribbling notes just to capture your turn of phrase. Um, so I, I want to get to all those things, but I kind of have some sort of like niggling little questions inside my head that, uh, that I'd love to just explore with you. Um, which is, you know, I, I was one of those millions whose life was changed by Diet for a New America. Um, it was somehow I stumbled upon the book, having no particular interest in the subject, um, in 1990, uh, January 1990, shortly after my father died of a heart attack. And that was one of the early salvos of, of healthy saneness that entered my life. It lasted for a couple of years, then I uh, retreated back. But, you know, in, in, in reading the story and then seeing some of the media hype about it, like I totally got his story from a mythic perspective. Uh, and I'm going to be hopefully interviewing uh, your dad, John Robbins, uh, in a week or so, so uh, I'll be able to ask him about that. But when I look at your story... I don't see where it comes from. Like I, I could, I could imagine you as like a young, you know, Michael J. Fox character from uh, was it Family Ties? You know, the, uh-huh. the, the kid of the hippies who who wants to grow up and like you know invent a new ice right. cream company. Like where did right. where did your own? You know, did you rebel in any way? I mean, where where did where did your own sensibility? Um, Get, get developed and strengthened in the face of, you know, such a, such an archetypal father story and and history. Well, I had this sense early in life, as I was coming of age, that I could rebel, and I needed to rebel. But I wanted to decide what to rebel against, and I came to the conclusion uh, in my early to mid teens that it would be far more productive and far more fulfilling to rebel against um, poverty and nuclear arms and war and violence and hunger and to rebel against uh, needless heart disease and diabetes and cancer than, and, and, and the really serious, I would say, evils of our times that are, that are robbing kids of the opportunity to have a decent life that I would rather rebel against government policy that's making Snickers cheaper than and more accessible than spinach when we know that we can transform the world and so many lives with the change. I'd rather rebel against those kinds of systems than against my own parents. <laughs> and I realized that to rebel against my parents would actually be in many ways to rebel against my own values because, frankly, they stood for a lot of what I believed in. And so... Um, you know, that, that was my calling. I can remember, you know, my grandparents inviting me down to visit 
when I was about 11 years old, and they got me alone in their home with the seven-car garage on the fancy golf course and took me out for a big shopping spree and then brought me back and, and you know, told me that they wanted to have a serious conversation with me. And, and they told me, my grandpa said, you know, not all kids follow the path of their parents. Some some kids really go a different way. Your dad didn't do what we had in mind for him. And, um, you know, you might decide someday that you want to go a different way, too, than your own parents. And we just want you to know that if ever you decide that you're interested in more of the good life and, and you know, um, more of the kinds of values that maybe we represent, that we're here for you. And you'll never go for a lack of, of you having your needs met. So if ever you feel like your parents' way of thinking is oppressive to you or you just want to try something different, just know that that we're here to help. And, uh, you know, on one hand, it was a very kind of loving message, although, uh, honestly, at the time, I felt a little more like I was um, Luke Skywalker talking to Darth Vader, and Darth Vader saying, Luke, come to the dark side. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, my grandparents are just basically telling me, you know, if ever you decide that you want a life of rampant materialism and early heart attacks, then come talk to us. (laughs) You know, I was like, okay, thanks, I appreciate the offer, but I'm pretty happy, you know, living with my mom and dad at the age of 11. And, um, you know, as, of course, every, everyone has to find their own path, their own, their own unique place in the world. You know, I can't take anything on just because my parents think a certain way, that that means I've got to think the same way. Um, but the beauty is that instead of feeling like I'm standing in my father's shadow, I actually feel more like I'm standing in his light. Oh. Because... His path has really helped um, give me ground to build on. And so uh, I certainly want to blaze my own trail and use modern technologies and reach out to my generation and find my own voice in the world. But I do so with a lot of help rather than having to rethink and, and unlearn a whole lot of, of um, dysfunctional things. And I'm grateful for that. Mm. I love I love that metaphor, especially since Darth Vader means dark father. <laughs> Literally, you have a, a light father, um, and it's you know it sounds like um, I was actually surprised when you started telling that story because it never occurred to me that you would have been given access to to that generation. I don't I don't know why it wasn't like a conscious thought on my part, but just that, that kind of there would have been a a generational break and that you just maybe never would have even met them or maybe seen them at a, at, a, at an event once. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering whether you feel like that, that access and even, even that offer was something of a gift as you look back now. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no question that I'm grateful, um, for connection with my grandparents and, uh, honestly I'm inspired by them because in their later years, um, they made some shifts. I mean, my grandfather ended up uh, nearly on his deathbed um, with serious life-threatening illnesses. He had major diabetes problems and heart disease. And his doctor basically told him, you're a very sick man and you've got only a few years to live uh, unless you decide that you want to make a real change. And his doctor, bless his heart, had, had read my dad's books and gave my grandfather a copy. And my grandfather wound up reading Diet for New America, and he followed its advice. He changed his diet late in life and wound up getting dramatic results. He lost a bunch of weight. He was able to completely get off his diabetes medications. His golf game improved seven strokes. And 
he, you know, said to my dad years later, near the, he had got another 10 healthy years, and then he said to my dad years later after that, he said, thank God some of us have lived long enough to learn a few new things. Huh. And he said to my dad, you know, when you left Baskin-Robbins, to be honest, I thought you were crazy. But, but I'm so glad you had the courage to follow your own star. Oh, that's beautiful. So I think it's, it takes incredible courage. A man who had built his life selling more ice cream than any human being in the history of the world had the courage to learn from his own rebel son and ended up being touched by his son's work in a way that benefited this man's life. And uh, it, it's not easy to change for any of us. Our habits have been built for a reason, and they're usually what we're comfortable with. So making change is hard at any age, in any stage. But when you've built your life selling a product, and then you're going to make a change on this kind of scale, I think that takes immense courage. And so I admire my grandfather for that. <laughs> right. I, I, I could just see, you know, looking into myself, like, I have trouble apologizing for, like, a wisecrack that I didn't even mean. <laughs> Like, yeah, right. like, like, I want to own that and circle the wagons and explain why it was the exactly right thing to say. And that has, you know, <laughs> maybe two people heard it. I can just imagine saying that your entire life's work, um, you know, was uh, maybe that there, there is, there's a better way to move forward. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, you know, that the reality is that we are in serious times. Whether we personally are facing serious health problems or not, we all know people who are suffering and who maybe have their lives taken early by diseases that could have been prevented. We're living also in times when the environment is deteriorating rapidly under the impact of human activities. And given the stakes, it behooves us to be willing to ask the big questions. It behooves us to be willing to challenge uh, any assumption. There, there are no sacred cows, so to speak, in this time. If, if you want to break out of the toxic food culture, which is crippling so many lives, then you have to be willing to challenge a lot of cherished assumptions and habits. But the benefits of being willing to ask the questions and learn from what medical research is telling us are so far-reaching. Uh, the United States now spends 19% of gross domestic product on health care. We call it health care, but really we probably would more accurate, accurately call it disease management because three-quarters of that spending is on chronic illness, the kind of stuff that will be with people ongoingly, possibly to the end of their lives. And two-thirds of that could be prevented with a change in diet. So the stakes are enormous for so many lives. I mean, one out of out of every three kids is expected to get diabetes in their lifetime. And uh, th th every child that, that is fed a diet that doesn't give them a foundation of health and vitality, I think we are being robbed of that child's genius, of what that child could do with, if given access to their full potential and their full health and the full circulation of blood flowing to their veins. And, and, and their brains. And so we all have a stake in every child's health. The future of our economy, the future of our civilization depends on our ability to optimize health and function, both 
so that we can reduce these massive health care costs and so that we can increase the vibrancy and the thriving capacity of future generations. Mm. So the stakes are enormous collectively, and they also are so personal with our own lives, and every one of us has loved ones who are suffering from this system. So we have such a stake in changing it, and as hard as it can be to change habits, uh, it is imperative, I think. Right. Well, one, one of the things that I love about your work and the work of the food revolution um, is how holistic you insist on being about it, in that you're looking at food from so many different perspectives. That, that only, you know, food is like the common denominator, but it's not always the, the point, even. So when I, when I, when we, we just, I got chills when you talked about, you know, every child's blood circulating fully through their body. Because um, I, I see our food problems as a, a symbol or a metaphor or, or a logical outgrowth of all our other problems that we're not circulating, we're not connecting, that our, that our hearts aren't sort of pumping together. There's so much fragmentation um, in the world, and food is both a cause and a symptom of that. It's true, and, and the wonderful thing is that food really is a leverage point. It turns out that what's good for our bodies is also good for our planet, is also good for our economies, is also even good for those of us who long for a more just and equitable and humane world. That, that the toxic food culture is wreaking havoc on our environment. It is torturing large numbers of animals and, and forcing them to live lives of abject misery and suffering that are, that are an insult to the basic decency that, that we carry as humans on this planet. Um, this, this toxic food culture is obviously ravaging our bodies and it's also robbing us of our productivity. And so we can make changes. And as we choose to eat more sustainable, more humane, more local, more plant-strong, more ethically produced foods uh, with you know, more organics and I would say also less genetically engineered ingredients, we are standing for so many causes that many of us hold dear. And if you're concerned about climate change, just consider that cows impact our climate more than cars do. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, in fact, livestock has a greater impact, livestock production has a greater impact on global warming than the transportation sector does. All of the cars and trucks and airplanes and ships and trains combined. So if you're really serious about wanting to make a change, then moving towards a plant-based diet is a really powerful step you can take. And I think that's exciting because sometimes in life you have to make trade-offs. You have to choose the lesser of two evils. You have to make compromises. And when it comes to food, we actually can really do stuff that will make a difference on so many of the issues we care about. Right. So Yeah, so I, I, as, as a fan of efficiency and, and, uh, and sort of repurposing, I love the fact that my salad counts towards so many good causes. Exactly. It does. It does. And, and I'm a fan of efficiency, too, you know. Uh, and um, so and, and I'm a fan of simplicity. And uh, that's another thing about food. We've got um, sometimes, you know, ingredients lists so long with all kinds of chemicals and food-like products and fake, fake foods that are masquerading as the real deal. You know, they've got pictures of beautiful blueberries on the cover of a, uh, on the package, and then you find out 
but there's not a single blueberry in there. And even we've got this product called Blueberry Bits now that's so sold, and uh, it doesn't contain a single blueberry. And so we've got these fake fake foods and chemical-based um, diet systems, and our bodies are not doing well with it. I mean, you can function for a while on, on fake stuff. If you put the wrong kind of gas in your car, it, it may drive, but eventually that engine's going to break down. So we are able to function for a while, you know, on this, but long-term, we're paying a terrible price. And, you know, Alzheimer's is another place where we're seeing this tremendous impact. Um, a study was done that found that people um, who had uh, a low-saturated fat, plant-strong diet uh, had 19 years more uh, memory function than people who ate the standard American diet. So if you know anyone with Alzheimer's, and most of us do right now, as the baby boomers are aging, it's becoming a bigger and bigger concern, um, you can realize this is one of those places where uh, like with heart heart disease, like with diabetes, like with obesity, a plant strong diet has huge impact. Right. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for a bit of consulting here. Um, so, when you say you know, would you like? I'm I'm giving a couple of talks in the next few weeks, and and the thing I'm really interested in, um, you know, now that I've uh, now that the book that. Uh, I wrote with with Colin Campbell. That he wrote with me. Whole is is out, and and uh, I'm doing talks about it. What people really want to know in the Q and A is, well, how do I do this? How do I change? So so one of my talks coming up is I'm going to show us a bunch of slides with a picture on the right and a picture on the left. And the picture on the left might be a bowl of blueberries. And a picture on the right might be uh, blueberry bits or blueberry pop tarts. And I'm going to ask the audience which one which one should we eat? And I'll have five slides like this. And I guarantee you that a hundred percent of the people will pick the right thing every single time. Right. And so, so the question is, and, and when you talk about the gasoline, the wrong gas in your car metaphor, that it'll run for a while. Well, my first reaction was, but nobody would do that. Nobody would treat their car like that. So what do you right. think? It, what do you think it is? Like you know, Diet for a New America is twenty three years old. There, were, you know, Dean Ornish was doing work th- before that. There were people in the fifties and sixties. Like this information is not hidden under a rock. Where do you think the the breakdown is between people knowing what will keep them healthy or make them healthy and what people actually do? Well, we've got a food industry that's, number one, hugely powerful. It's making a lot of money off the current system. And it's, it's able to invest that money to further its own interests. And those interests are furthered every time advertising goes out that promotes certain products. Huge amounts of money are being spent on ads. And I'll tell you what, we're not seeing a lot of ads for broccoli and spinach or you know, fresh salads, we're seeing ads for the most toxic and unhealthy foods. And there are, these products generally um, are also cheaper and have longer shelf lives, generally, than fresh foods. And so the reality is that we've got an economic system that has been um, influenced by these interests that have kept food transportation costs artificially low, that have kept subsidies in place 
to the tune of tens of billions of dollars in the United States for the commodities crops, large-scale corporate agriculture. Ultimately, what that's mostly going to is feeding cows and cars, our biofuels and our factory farms, and uh, to a certain extent, high-fructose corn syrup and a lot of the food additives that we see that we know are bad for us. So these products are artificially cheapened by government subsidies that are uh, being promoted by large-scale political contributions and lobbying from established interests. And they are using their influence to keep themselves cheaper and more accessible. And they also spend a lot of money um, getting researching and doing studies and um, having scientists develop the perfect crunch for a chip the taste that will just make everybody's mouth water. So they've been able to dupe our taste buds because we like, for example, naturally sweet things. Because if you're eating a fruit and it's sweeter, that means it's riper and therefore better for you. So we have wired into our bodies the preference for sweet stuff. Also, it gives you faster sugar, which which in, in a, you know, long ago would have been uh, perhaps helpful when, when you were struggling moment to moment for survival. We also have a liking for fats, and there's a way that our bodies have, have grown used to that because they have a more concentrated dose of calories, you know, uh, more than double the calories per, per gram of carbohydrates or proteins. So fats and salts also and sugars, um, we have a liking for those things in our bodies and the food industry has manipulated that liking and found ways to um, to kind of deceive us into thinking that things are healthy for us that are not, and then add to that massive amounts of advertising, tens of thousands of ads that we all absorb, add to that economic accessibility and the fact that for a lot of people who are poor, junky food is the only option. In West Oakland, California, there's 37 liquor stores. There's not a single grocery store. So people can get Snickers in 37 places. They can get Lay's potato chips in 37 places, but they can't get vegetables pretty much anywhere in town. So, and, and then there's the fact that because of longer shelf lives, because of all the preservatives that have been added to all this crap, the stores are able to stock it, and they have an incentive to stock things that aren't going to perish. And so put all that together, and a lot of people feel like they cannot afford to eat healthy food. I mean, you can get a McDonald's Big Mac, you know, a lot more cheaply than you can eat a really healthy, nutritious meal. And so there are, there's a tremendous incentive. And then there's the fact that what's, we're very social creatures, and we tend to do what's normal and what's common around us. And food is very social. I mean, breaking, breaking bread together down through history has been an act of communion and connection between peoples. And so we, want, we don't want to be isolated. We want to save money. We want to eat what tastes good, and we want to do what's familiar, and we've been enculturated with all these ads. So between all that, there are a lot of incentives that pull us in the direction of the toxic food culture. But I think that what's at stake is so enormous that, that we, we have the capacity to find another way and as we build new habits, I want to say, it gets easier and easier. And we become trailblazers. We, we manifest leadership. Norman Cousins said, nothing is more powerful than an individual acting out of his or her own conscience. 
that's helping to bring the collective conscience to life. So in the world of food, we have the capacity to act out of our own conscience, and as we do so, we change the course of history. Okay, so you you've painted a picture that I'm I'm not sure what movie is playing in my head, but it's like you know three guys with sticks facing the army, <laughs> you know, with uh, uh-huh. with 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 tanks and and uh, you know helicopters with with uh, machine gun turrets, and you know this this overwhelming force arrayed against us. And as you said, there's there's ads for pop tarts, but there's not ads for broccoli. There's lots of incentive in you know yes in Oakland, but also in uh, Whole Foods, to uh, to have shelf stable crap rather than you know healthy produce. It's it's kind of endemic, um, and we we're not going to fight back with with money. We're not going to suddenly raise forty billion dollars. To advertise fresh fruits and vegetables, so right. where where do we where does our power come from in in this seemingly uh, outmanned uh, struggle? Yeah, well, a friend recently said this isn't David and Goliath; this is a flea and Goliath. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's the deal: um, we're actually a lot more powerful than fleas. Um, and we actually have tremendous capacity because we all have the ability to practice self-determination. And any one of us can break out of this toxic food culture trance, and as we do so, obviously we do so for all beings. Um, and we are seeing massive change happening very, very rapidly right now. I mean, my dad wrote Diet for New America in 1987, and um, in the last 26 years, beef consumption in the United States has gone down over 25%. I mean, that's a big number from the biggest beef-consuming nation in the history of the world. We are seeing organics uh, skyrocketing right now. Um, we've seen a three-fold increase in organics in the last decade. We're seeing, uh, it's, it's now 4% of market share. We're watching farmers' markets increase, 10 times more farmers' markets in the United States than there were a decade ago. We're, we're seeing an explosion in community-supported agriculture and people taking an interest in where their food comes from. Non-genetically engineered foods uh, were uh, a novelty. No one even knew about the options a few years ago. Uh, now, it's in the last two years, there's been a growth from almost nothing to more than $2.5 billion worth of products sold that have a certified non-GMO label on their package. Uh, so we are seeing a market force emerging of people who are creating change. And uh, I think it's exciting. Uh, I think that that uh, sometimes early adopters uh, can feel like voices in the wilderness, but it's amazing how fast a co- something can move in a culture from being seen as crazy to being edgy to being avant-garde to being mainstream. <laughs> and uh, I think we're somewhere between crazy and edgy right now <laughs> in the food movement. And we're moving fast. <laughs> I love that. So, so, so one of, one of the things that struck me when I looked at the roster of speakers for the food revolution was, the, you know, if, as I close my eyes and think of like people who are, who are supporting the plant based movement, it wasn't just the usual suspects. There, there were some of them, but the the food revolution movement seems to be a bigger tent than that. 
Um, you know, there's uh, Mike Adams, who's, uh, you know, the health ranger, who is, I, I think, no fan of vegetarianism. Um, there are lots of other folks who are, who are talking about different, different ways of eating, different aspects. Um, how do you deal with the sort of, um, you know, the, the arguments the, about the details, about should you be vegan? Can you go paleo? Uh, is it all right to have some animal products? Um, you know, can you add oil? Like, what's, what's your take um, as, a, as a movement strategist on My really take the, is, the questions that I get after every talk? <laughs> right. My take is that we need a biodiversity of social change movements and food system change movements. And I celebrate everybody who is helping to move things in a positive direction. And I'm not a big stickler for fighting over the details. I think they matter. I think that to some people, whether or not they add oils could be a situation of life and death. But I also don't think there's any one-size-fits-all recipe for how you should live. We live in different ecosystems. We live in different communities. We each have our own unique biochemical individuality. And ultimately, you are responsible for figuring out what works for you. And you won't be doing a lot of good to anybody if you make the perfect into the enemy of the good. So I'm really interested in how we can move in a positive direction more than trying to be perfectionist. Hmm. And I, it, it, it's really sad to me when I see a lot of people um, who have used my dad's work and in some ways called it you know, the vegan Bible and then tried to become more vegan than thou. You know, it's kind of like, um, what is the old saying, God said this is good, and the devil said, yes, let's make it into an institution. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think we have a lot of, lot of times that we, we get passionate about something, and then we become strident about it. And in the process, we unconsciously alienate a lot of people. I mean, a lot of animal rights activists are doing so much good from such a beautiful place, and yet sometimes when we're alienating and polarizing, folks don't, don't they think we like animals better than humans, um, which is not the point in the slightest for anybody I know. <laughs> it's, it's, but, but it can come across that way. Um, so I think that judgmentalism and fundamentalism and self-righteousness can, can impact any issue in any community, no matter what we're working for. And we have to constantly be asking, you know, how can we make, do, do the biggest good rather than being the most self-righteous or the most perfect? Um, personally, I, I think that we can have a big tent in the food revolution. You know, our work is working for healthy, sustainable, humane, conscious food for all. And if someone's working for more healthy food, more power to them. If they're working for more sustainable food, more power to them. You know, if it's more humane that they're focused on, fabulous. Uh, you know, when it comes to food and health, which is where a lot of folks want to focus, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear if you look at the medical literature, of course there's variations in different perspectives, but the bottom line is that we need to eat less animal products, and we need to eat, you know, um, more fruits and vegetables, and, uh, you know, we need to eat less total calories, and, you know, whether people go totally vegan or just reduce their meat consumption is not, it's not really my big focus. Um, I think the point is that we need to eat a lot less, and that's true from a health perspective, um, and it's also true from an environmental perspective. You know, folks who talk about grass-fed beef and, you know, uh, humane, humanely raised animal products, you know, they have a point that, that there can be a niche for those ecologically, I think, in certain systems. 
Um, and, and there may be some nutritional value in some animal products for some people. I think that the jury's still out on that. We, there have not been any pure vegans cultures traditionally, but we know a lot today. Uh, and so I think it is possible to be vegan and totally thrive. Um, but it does take some consciousness and care. And you can't be a junk food vegan. You know, Twinkies may be vegan, but they're not healthy. <laughs> and so, uh, and there are a lot of folks who've gone vegan and thought, oh, if I just get rid of animal products, I don't have to worry. And sometimes they encounter some problems down the road. So, you know, we do have to listen to our bodies and find the wisdom therein. Um, and and the, we shouldn't let um, the, the minutiae arguments distract us. You know, we've got to find our own way, but let's remember we're part of something. We're challenging a system that is so toxic and so devastating. I think it, Dr. Joel Furman put it this way. He said that you would have a difficult time designing a diet that would be worse for our arteries than the standard American diet. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we did see one person who got who went, went further, Morgan Spurlock, one of the people we interviewed in the Food Revolution uh, he went to McDonald's and ate nothing but McDonald's meals for 30 days and made a film about it called Supersize Me, and he almost died in 30 days. So, you know, fortunately, most Americans are not just eating at McDonald's. <laughs> but the, the reality is that, that we know what, what path we're on as a, as a nation, and fortunately, we have choice. Beautifully put. Um. So, a couple more questions I'd love to raise with you if you have a few minutes left. Sure. Um, so, um, one of the things I saw in your bio that you talk and consult about is families leveraging privilege. Um, so, I can certainly see where, you know, in your own lineage, that, that idea comes from. Um, can you talk more about the importance of that and what it means to you? Um, yes, absolutely. Well, you know, coming from the background of my own, seeing my own grandfather, and I used to visit him and my grandparents, you know, at least once a year growing up, uh, and I would, they would take me out to the country club and I would see a lot of people with great wealth that they would hang out with. And, uh, I saw that wealth didn't buy happiness. That, Actually, happiness is, um, we have this illusion that if we have enough money, we'll be happy. And to the point that our society sometimes makes money and wealth and the accumulation of wealth more important than human life itself, more important than our planet, um, more important than our basic ethics and dignity. But when you actually get down to it, money, I think, is a tool. And like any tool, it can be used for good or for destruction. And we live in a context where money has been glorified and deified, and some people have accumulated such large amounts of it that um, while other people don't have their basic needs met. And I developed a longing early in my life to help bring about a more equitable and just world and to do so in a way that wasn't about creating more division and violence between classes and peoples, it was about helping everyone to have more of what their heart is really longing for. More connection, more beauty, a, a better world around us. Uh, I think Ted Turner said uh, years ago, it's no fun to be rich in a dying world. Hmm. So um, I started years back um, 
a program called Leveraging Privilege for Social Change, which brought together young people from backgrounds of wealth or privilege or different kinds to explore how we could unleash all that we have and all that we are on behalf of all that we love. My own privilege growing up wasn't so much monetary, but I did come of age with a dad who was a best-selling author and was inspiring millions of people, and that opened a lot of doors for me. And it might sound strange, but I sometimes actually felt guilty about it. Mm. Because so many of my peers didn't have the kinds of opportunities and the kinds of support that I did. And so I, um, I, was, I found myself longing for a community of peers to explore those issues with. I, I realized that the guilt was not helpful <laughs> to mobilization or to effective positive impact. And... Um, so what, what in time I came to realize was that guilt and pity go hand in hand and that um, that really what I was looking for was empowerment for, and and to be able to leverage and use what I had to make a difference. So I've, I've done some consulting work over the years and I've done a lot of facilitation work helping families and communities that have privilege and financial resources and, and exceptional opportunity to be able to use those on behalf of what they love and on behalf of their values. And so that wealth doesn't need to be a source of isolation or disconnection. We don't necessarily need more electric fences and more barricades and more disconnection. Some people almost feel imprisoned by their own security systems and their own gates. Um, And what we actually need is to have wealth become a source of contribution and connection. and, And, you know, maybe we should be judged as wealthy based on how much we can give not based on how much we can accumulate. Mm-hmm. As I'm thinking about that, you know, I, I grew up certainly privileged in terms of the, the, the gamut of human experience. You know, I never, I never wanted for, for food or clothing or shelter, and I could go to camps and nice vacations, but cer- you know, certainly not the, what, what anyone would call wealthy. Um, but, you know, wherever I went in the world, if we went to, to Dominican Republic, I certainly felt guilty about what I had and what other people didn't have. Um, and, you know, in, in hearing you describe the opportunities you're, you're facilitating for, for, the, for very, very wealthy, privileged families, it sounds like just the most selfish thing they could do, <laughs> you know, to, to, uh, to live, to live that, you know, that generously. I, I'm thinking like, God, that would feel incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's you true. Know, you know, I it's mean, like, to, to feel that your life matters and that you're making a difference is a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> and to think know, that, that we, have, we have this lie in our times that we're isolated consumers in a dog-eat-dog world and that, that human beings are fundamentally selfish. But I say it's a total lie. I think we're all hungry for the uh, the opportunity to experience our lives as mattering and as making a difference in the lives of people we care about. We all want to feel that we're here for some reason other than our own navels. Mm-hmm. And just like muscles need to be used, if, if you don't use your muscles, you're actually going to have pain in your body that you won't have if you use them. You know, we need exercise to function. You, you could think, oh, don't... Like if you don't drive a car even, it's going to eventually break down. You actually need to use it, and we need to use our bodies, and that's what we're built for. And in the same way, I think the muscle of giving and contribution is necessary. And when we don't serve, we atrophy, just like the human being who doesn't ever get off their butt 
and, and uh, so I think it's it's part of like our hands were meant to do stuff, and uh, that doing stuff relates to the world around us and the lives of people we care about. Hmm. So I think food is one of those places where we can break out of the myth of isolation and disconnection and, and claim our capacity to contribute because we really can't change the world with our knives and forks. Right, and I'm really struck by the, the word you used, that we're, we're hungry for that kind of connection and meaning. And it seems to me that maybe that hunger is what we're trying to fill through junk food, excess calories, um, you know, tortured and, uh, and, and abused animals. Um, that you know you yes. can, you can never get enough of what you don't need. It's so true. Well, Ocean, I'm so inspired and high for for our from our last forty forty minutes or so of conversation. I uh, I, I hope that other people listening to this will uh, will feel a hit of what I'm on right now because it feels really good. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, um, I think that the beauty of the food revolution is that you don't fight it with guns and bombs. You fight it with your knife and fork. And this revolution doesn't cause death and violence. It causes life and vitality. Right on. So, So for people who are interested in finding out more about you and about the food revolution, where should they go? Go to foodrevolution.org. And check us out. Again, that's foodrevolution.org. You can sign up for our email list. You can get a lot of great resources for free. Um, and you can, you can get a free Food Revolutionary Action Guide just for signing up. It's a, it's a wonderful resource. Um, we're here to help um, over 100,000 members strong and, and growing. We're here to help you to be, thrive and to contribute to a thriving future for our planet. Right on. And what, one thing we didn't we didn't talk about, but we 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 met um, because we're both marketers to some extent. And w- one of the things that I love about the emails that I get from from you and the food revolution is very often it, you'll say something. And I'll go, oh, that's a better way of saying it than I said it. It's like I, you know, I'm I'm armed with little love bombs and and clarity and great metaphors and explanations um, that make it easier for me to go out and be, be an ambassador. So I want to, I want to, you know, credit Thank and congratulate you. you for, for the, the wordsmithing you do, to, uh, to provide, you know, clarity and motivation. Not, not just the heart of the issue, but really thinking carefully about how do we say this in a way that will, that will work. Well, thank you. You know, we do need to find ways to communicate, and of course, depending on what culture and community we're talking to, different words may be appropriate. So. I think everyone's got their own niche. You know, we've got more than seven billion parts to play in the transformation, and you know, I just I just try to do my bit and hopefully hopefully leave this world a little healthier and a little more beautiful. And I know a lot of a lot of our listeners hold the same intention, and I, I thank I thank uh, all of the listeners for that. Yep. Well, let's let's ro- roll up our sleeves, get out there, and have some fun, and make the world a more beautiful and connected and healthier place. So. Ocean Robbins of foodrevolution.org. Thank you so much. It has been a, a huge, heart-bursting honor to, to spend this time talking with you today. Thanks, Howard.